Tonight as we look at week nine, we continue in this big story, this story that began in Genesis, that began with a God who, out of an overflow of divine nature, an overflow of divine relationship, desired to create, and God created with a word except for human beings who he breathed into the dirt that he had made and created a person. We were made in God's image to be in relationship with God. And uh, eventually, and, and, and our human, human ancestors uh, disobeyed God and fell out of relationship. And the rest of the Bible is this story of God's desire to recapture, to not just recapture, that, that, that kind of sounds desperate, um, like, like something you really can't do. It, trying, to, uh, um, uh, uh, trying to regain and bring back into relationship uh, human beings. And God does this through creating communities. And we're going to talk a lot about that tonight. God creates community. What's, what's the first community that, that God creates in the Bible? It, what? Well, the Garden of Eden, that's not, that, that is, but after the Garden of Eden, the community is called Israel. Yeah. Now, you may split hairs. You'd be like, well, was Noah's family a community or whatever, what have you? But, but the, the kind of generative, long-term community God calls is, is Israel. And Israel, God calls them in, in, for a purpose, and that's to be bearers of God's light. That is to, uh, to be followers of his, that, that God chooses to disclose God's will, which we call the law. We don't, you know, the law is God's will, and, and uh, the psalmist says, uh, to no other nation have you disclosed your will, uh, and, and it crea- and, and, uh, forms a community uh, centered around worship of God, around study of Torah, and uh, that, that has its ups and downs, right? We talked about that, that story of ups and downs of, uh, uh, of judges, of this pattern of disobedience and salvation and deliverance, and then disobedience and deliverance. And that, 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 that's a lot of patterns. So that's a pattern I think you and I can identify with. <laughs> disobedience leading to disaster, leading to deliverance, leading to disobedience. But, but those really aren't connected in the same way the others are, the cycles. Uh, through kings that were both good, bad, and really bad, uh, through deliverance first from slavery in Egypt, and then uh, taking into exile as a show of God's judgment, and then return from exile, the reformation of the people around the study of Torah. And all of this points to the hope of deliverance and the hope of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And last week, we kind of got to that, that main point of that story of Jesus, that Jesus, who is clearly descended out of that tradition, both biologically, uh, but but also spiritually, fully God, fully human, uh, comes and proclaims God's kingdom, uh, proclaims a kingdom that is not uh, earthly and political, though there are earthly and political consequences, but is primarily uh, one that is spiritual and eternal although it does have temp- contemporary and political implications. Uh, the gospel, uh, the good news that uh, we can be saved from our sin and disobedience, that we can be reconciled to God. 
tonight were, and, and we talked about how that was accomplished through death that served as an atonement. That is, uh, 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 you know, there's so many words, propitiation, uh, an atonement for sin uh, through the blood that was offered that is an image of the blood sacrifices of Israel, but is a once-for-all sacrifice. We'll talk about that a little more tonight. Uh, and then, uh, and, and, uh, then he is raised from the dead. And the power of death that uh, fought against Jesus at the cross, that appeared to win, that appeared to have defeated, uh, was broken and shown to be powerless against the power of God. And then appeared, uh, Jesus appeared to the disciples and commissioned them to go and proclaim that this kingdom is at hand. And so tonight we're going to talk about how that happens uh, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn in your Bible. That's the, you know, we talk about the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, we talk about made up of, of Torah, law, first five books of, of writings and of prophets. The New Testament is largely made up of gospels, four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts, which is kind of a history. And then we have the writings and then the apocalypse. So we're going to look at half the history and half the writings tonight. Next week, the other half of both. And then the final week, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. So Acts is a two-part. Um, uh, it, it's, it's like, you know, Godfather part one and Godfather part two. Of course, then they went on to part three, and I don't think that was quite as good, but neither, never mind that. Uh, but, but it's a two-part series. I, I was always wondered, I, I, in seminary, they said, do you, have you ever wondered why Luke and Acts are two different books and not just one? They, they believe that uh, Luke is, uh, the length of Luke and the length of Acts are each about the length of a standard scroll in Jesus' day. They just, it's, they just ran out of paper. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but I want us to, in some ways, we don't under, I don't really understand. To me, if you have two books that are sequels of each other, where do you put them in the Bible? Where would you put them in the Bible? Next to each other? Are Luke and Acts next to each other? No. no. Uh, so I don't really understand that. Uh, but, but it's clear in the beginning of Acts this is a two-part because uh, I think when we see Luke's emphasis is that the story of Jesus, the message of the gospel, is not just lived out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's important. But it's also lived out in the way that made a difference in the people who heard and, 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 and um, received the message. So the, the, the kingdom proclamation of Jesus both lived out in who Jesus was, what he did, what happened to Jesus, resurrection from the dead, but also lived out in the sphere of the church. So he writes this second book. Uh, it's interesting, and it is somewhat contrary to our age, that when Jesus uh, calls people to follow him, he does not call them to follow him alone. I think I've mentioned before that when I served in a rural part of northern Kentucky, not all the way to Cincinnati, about halfway, a little more than halfway from Lexington to Cincinnati, um, that it was very common when I would speak to people in the community who did not go to church, uh, their response would be, uh, they would say, I'd say, well, do you, I don't even know, I, they, I wouldn't even have to ask this, to be honest, it would just say, volunteer this, they would say, well, but I believe in God in my own way way 
Have you ever heard anyone say that? I believe in God in my own way. Now, I am not one to close the door on anyone's path to Jesus. But the Bible does not teach us that it is God's desire for us to follow him in our own way. I'm not going to be too strict here. You know, I'm reminded of the preacher who said, you can follow your way and I'll follow his way. It's not like that. But, uh, but when we look at this, I believe that, G- that God in, in Genesis, what did God say when God created Adam and he was alone? What did he say? It is not good for the man to be alone. And I think something when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, like all kingdoms that exists, includes more than you. The kingdom is plural. And in fact, just as we see a parallel here, just as God in Genesis 12 calls Abram to be this people Israel, so here we see God calls this group of people to be the church, to be the body of Christ. And so tonight we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to talk about what that means to be the church and the importance of the, of the church and so what happens is the story begins, Jesus is still with us, still with the disciples. And uh, they say, and in verse 1, and then uh, he, he is there, and he presents himself alive to him by many convincing proofs, appears to them for 40 days. It, it's interesting, it is not clear that Jesus lived with them continually the way he did while he, before he was crucified, but he appears to them. And then uh, they say, when they, came, when they come together, they said, uh, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what are they thinking about here? A king, yes. And Israel, what, what do we know about Israel's political situation in this time? They're under Roman rule. Now, what we also know in the first century is we later find comes to a terrifying and, and terrible climax in the, Jew, in the Jewish wars of, 70, around the, of the early 70s A.D. is this was also a time of great disaffection. This was, uh, if you read kind of secular histories, they'll talk about this period, is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Uh, the Romans were so powerful that they had vanquished all their enemies. It was, to use the contemporary political science term, a unipolar world. That is to say, one superpower. Um, and, and so, but here we found a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of desire for Jewish independence. And so I think here what we see is that desire expressed. Is now the time, uh, after all you beat death, the Roman army should be no, sh- no, uh, no, no big shakes to you. Uh, should, will you restore? And he says, uh, that's not my idea of a kingdom is not about temporary political authority. Instead, he says, uh, the, the idea of the kingdom is the power that will come not over a nation, but over a people. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I think Acts 1.8 is the topic sentence, is the thesis of the book of Acts. This is my theory. I think it's well attested by others as well. Because what you see is the organization of the book of Acts after this follows that exact pattern. 
Now, many people, when you read it, it's not necessarily a bad way to read it. It's just not, I think, the way the author intends it, uh, to say that you should go to Jerusalem and then go to Judea and Samaria, go to the ends of the earth, and go be my witnesses. Uh, what's interesting here is any time, every time, almost every time they go, they either go, one, by the direct leading of the Spirit, or two, involuntarily. Uh, in a few, we'll talk about in a little while, uh, when we skip from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, they do so as the result of persecution. And what, it's almost as though he's saying, when you go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and when you get to the ends of the earth, wherever you are, there be my witnesses. I think of it this way. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, if only I could be a missionary in Africa, I could be a witness for Jesus. You know, if only I could be a witness for Jesus like our missionaries in Costa Rica. And what is Acts telling? What is Jesus saying here in Acts? He says, wherever you are, be a witness. That's what he's saying. Uh, that's what he's saying. Wherever you are, uh, be a witness. And that's the last thing Jesus says. He's lifted up out of, uh, out of their sight, and uh, they, they, they're just dumbfounded looking up. And they say, uh, men, and then two men in white robes say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's this idea promised here that uh, the Holy Spirit will come, will descend, and then there will be a time of Jesus' return. And then we return to those themes in the other writings. And uh, so they then uh, Judas had, um, uh, he had forfeited his place among the disciples, so to speak. Uh, we find that Judas, uh, Judas, uh, many believe that Judas was not necessarily evil or malicious, uh, but that G Judas was another one of these people who had hoped for a political rebellion. And, and in some ways, he thought he might push Jesus' hand. And then to see that actually what happened instead of Jesus starting the war, and we, we kind of imagine that may have been the thought, because you were, if you maybe remember the story last week, that Jesus uh, is arrested, and what does Peter do? He pulls his sword, right? The war's going to begin. And what does Jesus say? He says, attack. Does he say that? No, he says, put the sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Okay. Right. You, that's a, that is made, that's a, that's a phrase you've heard of outside of the Bible too, isn't it? But it's Jesus. And so, and, uh, 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 so, so there is this sense of, of uh, the, the, and then Judas is absolutely grief-stricken. Um, I do believe that he was, the scriptures teach he was inspired by the devil to do that, but the devil used those, those, uh, those feelings uh, that, that, in, in, that had some bearing. You know, he wanted justice and freedom for his people. Those weren't bad feelings, but the devil used them. And Judas, in a time of grief, uh, hangs himself hangs himself and throws the money away. But they, they decide to they select one, and through uh, a lottery, they choose Matthias, Matthias the less, least known probably of the, of, the, of, the, of the original apostles. And so they wait then together. And what we see in chapter 2 is this formation of the church. The church is formed, um, one, 
The first time we hear about church we, is when Jesus says uh, to Peter, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Jesus says, flesh and blood have not taught you these things, and upon this rock I will build my church. The word church, ecclesia, is uh, the people called together. A church is not about a building. Church is about people. Uh, when I was in Nashville a couple of years ago, uh, we were, I was driving on West End Avenue. Many of you know it's the road that goes out beyond Vanderbilt University in the West End of Nashville and saw a really magnificent uh, colonial-style um, Presbyterian church. It's the Presbyterian church that Bill Frist and the Frist family that owns HCA, the hospital chain, are members of. It's a, you can imagine a very, very grand building. And it sits there, and out in front, a very tasteful sign, you know, white colonial sign, black lettering. And it says there on the front of it, the Westminster Presbyterian Church meets here. Have you ever seen that on a sign? Usually we just say Westminster Presbyterian Church, here it is. But what the sign said is the Westminster Presbyterian Church meets here. So who are the church, what's the church? The people, not the building. The building is a tool. This is not Centenary United Methodist Church. This is the, where Centenary United Methodist Church meets. Many of you, I look around, uh, you were members of Centenary United Methodist Church when it didn't meet here, when it met at, uh, at uh, 3rd, and, 3rd and Walnut Street. And then generations before that met on the other corner of 3rd and Walnut Street. Generations before that met out on the Durham Farm about two-thirds of the way to Paraville, but it's been the same church because the church is not the building, the church is people. And so what happens is the people are gathered, and the people are called to be the church. Um, they're called to be the church by the movement of the Holy Spirit, that the church is something that comes into being not by uh, any human being, you know, they didn't get together and they said, well, you know, Jesus mentioned, you know, Peter said, you know, I remember Jesus mentioned about a church. We ought to start one. That's not how it begins. They gather together and they pray, but then what happens is that uh, the Holy Spirit comes and, uh, and, and just blows through the doors. They come on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the Jewish feasts, and it says that people uh, were from every nation under heaven there in Jerusalem for the feast. We talked about that after the exile, uh, that we have something called the diaspora, that Jewish people live not just uh, in Babylon or in Israel, but they actually then over time migrate to live throughout the Near Eastern world. But they come back to Pentecost. Um, and they come, and over time, they're learning to speak different languages. But there in that place, it says, From heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. You see, we, last week we talked about how Miracles in Jesus' time were designed to show forth God's power. They weren't necessarily humanitarian gestures. What we see here is the speaking in other languages is not designed for entertainment, but is designed for a really practical purpose. Why are they designed to speak? Why are they given the ability to speak in other languages? 
so the people could understand it. it uh, so whenever things are spoken of is languages and tongues, the purpose is always edification. And so they come and these people are like, we're from all over the place. Uh, nobody within 500 miles speaks our language. And here we are hearing these people speaking with their silly Galilean accents, our language. You know, Galileans spoke a recognizable uh, you know, it's like, uh, it, 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 it'd be, you know, a little bit like uh, the fellows from Duck Dynasty speaking in Times Square. <laughs> you don't know necessarily where they're from, but they're not from around here. Um, you know, it, it, it's a recognizable accent. Um, and those of us from Kentucky uh, are aware of that. Um, it's a, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, where we swear up and down there are no accents. I don't think it's true, but we swear up and down it is. Um, but so they had this strange accent, and, and just as though, uh, you know, even no matter how good of a speaker you are in French, the French always claim they can tell if you speak with an American accent. These people could understand. They said, aren't these people Galileans? How can we hear each of them in our own native language? And in their own languages, they're hearing about God's deeds of power. And among those we hear speaking, this one Peter. What was the last time we heard Peter speaking in public? He's denying Jesus. It's amazing what difference the Holy Spirit can make in someone's life. When the Holy Spirit comes, it says there that uh, Peter stands with the twelve, raises his voice and addresses them and gives a powerful message saying to the people that what this is, this is not something new. This is not something uh, extraordinary. This is not something from beyond the experiences that you have. But this is, in fact, he quotes Joel. We talked about Joel a couple weeks ago and the prophet. Uh, he speaks about David, and he says, what you are seeing here is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. They make the argument in the book of Acts, and it is somewhat a political argument, but it is also just a true argument and a theological one, that Christianity is not a new religion. It is not just using the images of Judaism. This is actually the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises to Israel. It is not a separate religion. It is not a replacement religion in the sense of whether well, you can do that religion or this one. It is saying that if you, if you have the same hopes that the prophets had, if you have the same recognition that David had, you will be looking forward to the day where God will act decisively to redeem his people. And that has happened in Jesus Christ. And when he came, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. That's the story that Peter says. And it says, when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And then Peter says in Acts 2, chapter 38, I always say this is probably the application point of every sermon I ever preach. And it's probably the application point of every Christian message. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that's the application point. What can we do in the face of recognizing our sin, our disobedience, our 
disconnection from God, and we hear that God has made a way, what can we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized, so you may be forgiven, and be forgiven. That's the answer to the Christian proclamation. Repent, be baptized, so your sin may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit come filling the people with power, filling the people with the power of conviction of sin, with the power of uh, being able to bolt, to know that they are adopted children of God and to be able to speak boldly. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And then he says something that we're going to find interesting. For the promises for you for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. Now it is interesting, as is said in those days, that Jews would speak of themselves as near to God and everyone else as far from God. Do you hear what's going to happen here? That God's plan through Jesus to form a church is not a, just a church of his chosen people, the Jews, but it is a church that is open to people, as we say today, of all ages, nations, and races. And we'll get into that. And it says today, they welcomed, those who welcomed the message were baptized, and that day, 3,000 people were added. They went from, I think, 120 to 3,000 in one day. Thus, the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And then Acts speaks for a while about the early days of the church. And I always try to understand what this was about. They speak in these dramatic terms. And people speak, we need to get back to this. And they speak about that there was, uh, all the believers were together all the time and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and share them with each other. They would spend time in the temple. Uh, the temple, interestingly, showing there is no consciousness of a separate religion, but that it is a fulfillment of God's call to Abram and promise to Israel. And they would uh, spend time together, break bread at home. They would be in the temple. They would be at home, and they would eat, and they would be together. They would praise God. They would have the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. There's that early message of the church. Uh, of Jesus Christ, that there was this togetherness, this community. I always think that I understood it better when I met my wife. I think, and think many of you, um, um, in some ways my wife, in, in most ways really, my wife and I are more in love today than we've ever been before. And I hope you can say the same about your spouse. But in some ways I look back to those lovely first days when we were together. And I just think about how, how, much, how much we just enjoyed being around each other all the time. How much we couldn't wait to see each other the next time. That, that sense of falling in love. And I wonder if that might give us just a little thought about what this early church experienced. Falling in love with Jesus and with Jesus' people. They were so overwhelmed by this, by being in love with Jesus, they were also in love with the people. And, they, and, and, and what we find is this doesn't last, <laughs> sadly. Read the book of 1 Corinthians if you don't believe me. Uh, they, they devolve into fighting and all the things that happen even in churches today. Not this church, obviously, other churches. Um, but... Uh, but... Um, 
and they they are together and and we find that that there's this this community that is built they gather together in Solomon's porch they are confronted by authorities but again Jesus by the power of the holy spirit they are able to speak boldly uh, they are imprisoned but uh, then they are released they share with each other the sharing got a little out of hand uh, so to speak uh, then there were these two folks named Ananias and Sapphira they're kind of really tragic figures in these scriptures. And uh, they say, they, you know, people are saying, I I'm selling this and giving it to people. They got really excited. And they said, well, we'll sell our field too. But then they decide to sell the field and they said, well, we probably ought to hold some back for ourselves. And they said, well, we're bringing it all. But they didn't. So what happens? They're struck dead. It's just wild. I, and what it is, is I think it's, it's, now it does not say that they were not saved. It does not say that they went to hell, but, uh, but, but in the interest of preserving this community, the church, uh, they, uh, they are removed. Uh, they're removed. Uh, so, what? Permanent. Perm permanently in, in earthly terms. I don't know permanently in eternal terms, and we talked about that Sunday, but they are removed. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe I have a really optimistic view. Uh, that they can withstand a, a relatively minor fault, I think, as, as people go. Um, but what happens is uh, then in the midst of this, this great time of, of uh, somehow they had all the goodwill in chapter 2, but by chapter, well, 3, uh, they're persecuted. Uh, chapter 5, they are persecuted even worse. Uh, they are imprisoned. Uh, they, are, uh, uh, they are then... Uh, uh, released, but before they're released, they are flogged and order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. By the next verse, they were speaking in the name of Jesus, so it didn't really take because uh, they, they, as they left the council, they rejoiced. They were considered worthy to suffer dishonest, dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. There's the building up of the church. Chapter 6 speaks about uh, that the apostles... Uh, that as they're together, they're caring for one another in a way that was unique, and they find that uh, it's too much work for the... Uh, because what's happened is the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Jews, uh, they're both in this community, and they're claiming because all the Hebrew... all the apostles are Hebrews, and so the Hellenists say, we're being left out, and so they appoint what are called deacons in church to be to be those who connect who who care for the people within the congregation we've recently done that in our congregation once again appointed people who we call care ministers uh, to to serve uh, to serve the people to visit uh, to be looking out for people uh, we did that too we think that's a biblical vision and they do that and one of them is named Stephen uh, just if you only you think the apostles are the only ones who get in trouble, immediately Stephen gets in trouble. He speaks once again boldly uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He speaks at some length, once again, emphasizing that, uh, that the story of Jesus grows out of the hope of Israel. He speaks of Moses. He speaks of the burning bush. He speaks of the, uh, of the, of the prophets. Uh, he speaks of the exile, and then he says, uh, you didn't listen to the prophets. You've always opposed what God is up to. Uh, 
How many of those prophets did you not persecute? You threw Jeremiah into a well. He didn't say that, but it's true. Uh, and now, when Jesus came, the Son of God, what would you do to him? You persecuted, you killed him too. Turns out, uh, the people were not excited to hear this. And they pick up stones, and they beat him with stones to death. And it says in 8.1, And Saul approved of their killing him. He's, we're going to come back to him next week. And a severe persecution comes in Jerusalem, and they are pushed out where? To Judea and Samaria. And as they go, do they stop preaching the word? No. What happens? The gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, that the gospel advances through persecution is a clear teaching. And then what happens? They go to Samaria, and it turns out not just the Jews receive the message, but also these Samaritans, who were people who were thought to be half-breeds, thought to be subhuman, and all the things that when we racially divide that people will tend to put on other, other ethnicities. They believed these things, but yet somehow God decided to give them the Holy Spirit as well. And so uh, the Samaritans come. And then if that weren't enough, that the angel, an angel tells Philip, go down to the desert road, and he's there, and then a eunuch from Ethiopia comes. He doesn't even look like them. And he is in a chariot, and he is reading the prophet Isaiah, but he doesn't know what it means. And they read the passage from Isaiah that says, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb silent before his shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can de describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? That's a ball that's low, slow, and over the plate for Philip. And he tells him, it's about Jesus. And as he tells the story, the eunuch says, look, there is water. What is preventing me from being baptized? It's great when people ask you about baptism and you don't have to ask them. And there Philip baptizes him, the first non-Jew to be baptized in the history of the church. So the church is starting to expand. The church is starting to be beyond Jerusalem, beyond Jews. It, it comes out of the hope of the, the, the story of Israel, but it starts to spread beyond. Whereas before, that the temple, the, the mount of God, was designed to be a light to draw people in. Now from that same mount is the light being sent out to the ends of the earth. Just envision that. The light coming, focusing from all humanity down to the building of the temple, to the place of God in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus is then tried and crucified and raised from the dead, and now that light is going to go out to the ends of the earth. So that's the story of the church. And so we're going to also look at uh, the rest of It's interesting, we could just end with Acts and go to Revelation. The church... Then the, then the story of, of, of um, the apocalypse. But in between, we have these uh, books, these writings that take up much of the New Testament. 
Um, and so we're going to look at some of these writings. Next week we're going to look at the writings attributed to Paul. That would be Romans through Philemon or Philemon, as you may pronounce. Uh, either way, you may pronounce it. Like I said, nobody knows how to pronounce any of these words anyway. Um, and, and tonight we'll look at Hebrews uh, very quickly through Jude. Uh, Hebrews is, a, uh, is, is, is really more of a sermon. Um, it is probably written for Jewish Christians um, because it, is a, uh, it, it, uh, it uses so much of the imagery of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It uses the imagery of the story of Israel. The image of Jesus here is Jesus is our priest. It uses that theme of Jesus as sacrifice, uh, but Jesus is a priest who doesn't just offer sacrifice, but Jesus is the sacrifice. Eastern Christians historically thought Paul was the author of that. You may have at one time got it in your mind that Paul was the author. There's no evidence that, but it does have many of the same theological themes, but it never says that Paul is the author, and most of Christian history has not said that. And so the theme overall in the book of Hebrews is how Jesus is a warning against apostatizing is about saying, well, Jesus couldn't possibly grow out of our tradition. We need to, we need to exclude Jesus and just include our tradition of, of Israel. And he says, no, what he's doing is he grows out of that tradition. And he fulfills the tradition. He speaks about uh, that Jesus is, is superior to the prophets. Uh, says, you know, God has in the past spoken by prophets, but now he has sent a son. He's superior to angels. The, the angels come down uh, to us, and they are greater than us, but Jesus comes to be little lower than the angels like we are, as the psalmist teaches in Psalm 8, but then comes down only to lift us up. And so he is greater even than the angels, speaks about Moses, that uh, Moses was a servant, but now God has sent a son. He speaks about Joshua, and they said, Joshua brought us into rest, and they said, well, Jesus is going to bring us into eternal rest, uh, the, the eternal rest of heaven. Uh, it talks about the priesthood and says the priesthood is designed to offer sacrifice for your sins, but those sacrifices must be repeated. And the priests have to offer sacrifices, we learned this in our series on Leviticus, first for themselves and then for the people. But Jesus is able to offer the perfect sacrifice because he is without sin and he is our great high priest. And so we can approach God through Jesus Christ, that we can by faith uh, be saved. That the Old Testament, and he speaks about the Old Testament heroes. The Old Testament heroes, they persisted also by faith. Uh, they, uh, they, you know, by, by Abraham, he was saved by, by trusting God's plan. Moses was saved by trusting God's plans. These other heroes saved by trusting God's plans. And then in chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. See, that's the story of the book of Hebrews. The next one is the book of James. James is interesting. I know probably, I'm guessing many of you, James is one of your favorite books in the New Testament. You know, I'm getting a thumbs up in the back. Uh, James is great. Um, uh, James is gr loved for a lot of the same reason that Proverbs is loved. James is very practical. Uh, Hebrews is very impractical. <laughs> and James is practical. 
uh, it's a series of practical exhortations. And it has this theme uh, that, um, that you will show your faith by how you live. You will show your faith by how you live. It, 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 all these letters are written to uh, communities under varying levels of persecution. And he's saying to the world, you will show your faith by how you live. Uh, you will not show your faith by telling people they're wrong or they're bad. You will not show your faith by, being, by saying you're better than others. You will show your faith by good works, by good works, by patience, by sharing with one another, uh, by being doers and not just hearers of the word. Uh, James tells us that in the world you can proclaim your faith well by how you live. The Peter, the two, uh, the two, what they call the Petrine epistles, the two epistles, epistles traditionally attributed to Peter, uh, which if it was, was probably in the, he was martyred in 65, probably written in the early 60s. Possible that Peter, these epistles were written in Peter's name, which was not as bad a thing to do as it was, is now, probably during the persecution of Domitian in the 80s or 90s, but it is written to a people in persecution. Uh, Peter speaks about how he writes from Babylon. Is he likely actually writing from Babylon? Probably not. But he's writing from the seat of empire, probably from Rome. Once again, speaking to Jewish Christians, and he says, you and I have a hope. You and I have a hope of a Jesus who is coming to make all things new. And because he's coming to make all things new, we can live uh, in holiness says, therefore, prepare your minds in 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, he who called you is holy. That is to say, set apart. Be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am. Am holy. It's a wonderful passage there. Uh, holiness is not holier than thou, but holiness is, even in the midst of persecution, to stay fixed on Jesus, to stay fixed on the character of Jesus, and to live in that way. Um, the uh, because what they did is in is uh, they said, well, because I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't live the same way. Be a follower of Jesus, James teaches us, changes how we live. First Peter tells us that too, uh, that uh, even in the midst of, uh, of persecution, don't give in, but instead be persistent in doing what, uh, what is right and what is good. Second Peter uh, speaks in a similar way, but speaks also in terms of false teachers. Uh, it says, once again, the theme is, trust them by their fruits. He defends, he defends true teaching, um, and then uh, versus false teaching and the immorality that comes from that. Uh, once again, saying, looking forward to God's judgment and knowing that it will come. The book of Jude is similar. Jude is really one of the most interesting letters uh, it's full of very strange, um, 
John Wesley said it's similar to the second letter uh, of Peter. He's saying there once again, these false teachers, they lead you into immorality. False teachers were often saying it doesn't matter how you live. doesn't matter how you live. You can live, you can do whatever you want. He said that's what false teachers do. Does it lead you into holy living or does it lead you into immoral living? Look at that. That's how you can judge is because there at the turn of the first century and the second century, there is a, a, the increase of other types of Christianity, other beliefs. Um, and, and he's saying, no, it, it, shun that. Look at what happens to the people who get involved in that. What is their lifestyle like? And is that a lifestyle that is commensurate with the way that God would have you, uh, would have you to live? The three letters of John are the last ones we're going to talk about here. Uh, once again, uh, he is writing to people to keep them uh, staying firm in their faith, uh, to keep them abiding in, uh, to keep them abiding in God, and to keep them living and on track with the way that God would have them uh, to live. In in First John. Second uh, John once again speaks about false teachers. And uh, there, uh, and it talks about especially there, those who do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Uh, that's not the one person, but they are antichrist, literally. Um, and, and look out for false teachings. He says, if, if they're teaching that Jesus has not come in the flesh, don't even welcome them into your home. They will cause bad things to happen. There is definitely, uh, there is no patience in the New Testament letters to divide teaching from living. You can't say, well, I live right and I believe, and he believes right. For those earliest, those went together hand in glove. To believe right is to live right. Uh, to, to have a right understanding of who God is, the character of God, and the grace of God is to transform your heart so that you will live according to the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, third, the third letter is uh, speaking once again of hospitality, uh, of, of thankful for, for hospitality, but also uh, announcing by name <laughs> uh, good and bad teachers. Uh, I have written some of the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing and spreading false charges against us. And then he says, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. Whatever, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone is testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. And so once again, those, those letters reminding us of the importance and the connection of true teaching uh, and of true and right behavior as an emphasis of the church in its first century. So next week, though, we will go up to the, the great figure of the early church, the great figure of the first century, and his name is Paul.